goddesses in the Greek pantheon all have reputations that are unique to themselves. Athena is known for her wisdom, Aphrodite has her curves, Demeter is the reason we have seasons, and Hera has her whole jealous, vindictive wife thing. But there is one goddess whose role in mythology is constantly overlooked. Her name is Hestia. She's Zeus's sister, and she's the goddess of the home, the hearth, and the sacred fire the hearth contains. Chapter 1. The Chief of the Goddesses Now I'll be honest, it's pretty easy to see why most people forget about Hestia. They shouldn't, because in some ways she's even more powerful than Zeus, but the few myths that feature her are a little too dark and disturbing to make their way into pop culture, so they're rarely talked about. Not to mention, her domain is pretty specific. I know that when I first read about her, I had to look up what a hearth even was, because they're just not as relevant in today's world. They're basically fireplaces, by the way, and they were vital to Hestia's power. See, back in the days of ancient Greece, hearths were all the rage. Most households actually had two one inside and one outside, and they were used to generate warmth, cook food, and most importantly, make sacrifices to the gods. In other words, they were a necessary part of day-to-day -day life. If you didn't have access to a hearth, then you couldn't eat much, you couldn't patronize your patron god, and you ran the risk of freezing to death in the winter. Hearths were considered so important that every major town and city had a hearth at the center of it, usually in their town hall and these public hearths were sacred places of asylum where travelers and those in need would implore for Hestia's protection. It was also tradition that when a city sent out a colony to make a new settlement, they would light a torch on the mother city's sacred hearth and use that fire to establish the hearth in the new city. If the fire of her hearth ever went extinct, it wasn't allowed to be lit again with just any ordinary fire. It had to be fire produced by friction or by burning glasses, similar to how the Olympic torch is lit with parabolic mirrors. Hestia didn't have many temples or major cults dedicated to her, but the fact that hearths were literally everywhere in the ancient world meant that she was literally everywhere in the ancient world, including temples honoring other deities, and she always got a little piece of the action. Because in order to make a sacrifice to any of the gods, it didn't matter who, you had to make a sacrifice to Hestia first. After all, it was because of her sacred flames that your sacrifice could reach the gods in the first place. Luckily, she wasn't very picky. Hestia's sacrifices consisted of cows that were one year old, fruit, oil, and wine. I think that wine was a lot of people's sacrifice of choice because the only Homeric hymn dedicated to Hestia specifically mentions sacrificing wine. It says, For without you, mortals hold no banquet where one does not duly pour sweet wine and offering to Hestia both first and last. This isn't a very endearing metaphor, but you can think of Hestia as the tax man always taking her cut. The big difference between the two is that Hestia isn't cold and dead inside. Quite the opposite, actually. She's known for being the gentlest, kindest, and most forgiving of the Olympians, which is also why there aren't many myths about her. She doesn't waste her energy on the drama. Which is good, because when you think about it, it would have taken her no effort at all to eavesdrop on almost every conversation human beings were having at that time. She could have been a gossipy little twat, but she wasn't, and she deserves our respect for that. Hestia's temperament most likely derives from all the positive associations with hearts their various uses, and the fact that they were most often located in the center of every home meant that your life literally revolved around the hearth. Especially at night, when the temperatures dropped and the monsters came out to hunt, you had to hang out by the fire if you planned on surviving to the next morning. This wasn't exclusive to the ancient Greeks either. 
Hearths satisfied the universal human needs of sustenance and safety, and so they were places where people connected with each other. Families gathered around the hearth to eat their meals, say their prayers, and tell each other about their days. They would swap stories, discuss phenomenon they didn't understand, and learn about the world around them. This is also why Hestia was considered the goddess of the home and hospitality. You couldn't have either without a proper hearth. I think the reverence that the Greeks had for Hestia is connected to how much emphasis and value their culture placed on hospitality. I can't help being reminded of the story of Baucus and Philemon. For those who haven't heard it, Zeus and Hermes disguise themselves as peasants and walk around the city of Lydia, begging for food, shelter, anything to help them get by. But all the wealthy people they approach tell them to kick rocks. It's not until they arrive at a tiny little shack owned by an old married couple named Baucus and Philemon that they're finally treated with some dignity. The old couple shared what little they had and slaughtered their only goose so their guests would have something to eat. Zeus was extremely thankful for the couple's generosity, and so he spared them from the punishment he inflicted on the rest of their city. The god of the sky summoned a flood that washed the Lydians away, and the only structure left standing was Baucus and Philemon's house, which Zeus had transformed into a glorious temple to the gods. The Greeks believed that when a stranger knocked on your door, they could be anyone a beggar, a king, or a god, so it was best not to insult them. To do so would be an insult to the gods, and to Hestia in particular. She wasn't nearly as vengeful as other deities, so it's not like you ran the risk of her massacring your village like with Zeus. Nonetheless, she was important to have on your side. Otherwise, you could find yourself abandoned when you need hospitality the most. I think some people call that karma. Now that you know how important Hestia was to ancient Greek life, I'm hoping that I'll give you some added perspective as we dive into the few myths that feature her. Chapter 2. A Mostly Low-Key Life Myths about Hestia are few and far between. The most well-known story featuring her is the Greek creation story, which details that time she was born and then promptly eaten by her father Cronus, the Titan King who ruled the universe before the Olympians took over. You see, when Cronus's wife Rhea, who was also his sister, presented their firstborn daughter to him, a little baby Hestia, he remembered the warning from his mother Gaia that his children would one day be strong enough to overthrow him like he did to his father Uranus. Wanting to secure his place on the throne, Cronus decided the most effective preventative measure would be to swallow his daughter whole, and he employed the same strategy for the four children that followed. The story goes that Rhea saved her youngest son Zeus from being eaten by swapping him out with a rock and ordering some nymphs to raise him in secret. Sometime later, when Zeus had grown to his full strength, he infiltrated his father's retinue of servants and served him a chalice that was laced with a puking potion. The big dummy drank the entire thing without hesitation and spent that night puking his guts out along with the five children he swallowed in reverse order. The reverse order thing is important because that's why Zeus is considered the oldest of his siblings despite being born last, and that's why Hestia is the youngest even though she was born first. The reborn Olympians and Titans went on to fight for control over the cosmos for the next 10 years with the Olympians coming out on top, and as punishment for being so unwilling to get the hell out of the way, many of the Titans were imprisoned in Tartarus including Cronus in some versions. In other versions, he was given lordship over Elysium, which sounds like a pretty cushy retirement plan if you ask me. Although maybe not as good as Ghislaine Maxwell got it. Now this might be a bold assumption, but the fact that you chose to watch a video about a lesser known goddess like Hestia tells me that you're not a newcomer to the world of Greek mythology. 
So you've probably heard this story a number of times and are aware that Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades divided their territories into the sky, the sea, and the underworld by drawing lots. But have you ever noticed that it's never explained how the goddesses ended up with their domains? We know the origin of seasons thanks to the myth about Persephone being abducted by Hades, but Demeter's association with nature and the harvest are treated as givens, as is Hera's role as goddess of family. However, if we look at the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, we can see exactly how Hestia found her place among the Olympians. The hymn states that Hestia was being relentlessly pursued by Poseidon and Apollo, who both wanted the queenly maid's hand in marriage. She'd already told them she wasn't interested, but you know how persistent gods can be. So to get her point across, she had to swear an oath on Zeus's head that she would remain a virgin for all of her days. It was a bold move, but Zeus respected it and rewarded Hestia for her commitment to a pure and chaste lifestyle. He declared that her shrines would be the center of every house, that every god would have to share a portion of their sacrifices with her, and that mortal men would call her the chief of the goddesses. The hymn then says that Hestia, Athena, and Artemis are the only three deities who can't be influenced by Aphrodite's will, which says a lot considering that even Zeus couldn't resist her charms. I think Hestia played her cards the best out of all the gods in the Greek pantheon not just the Olympians. Not only was she wealthy as hell from receiving a percentage of every sacrifice that mankind made, she was also given the all clear to stay out of the world of romance, which is where half the Greek tragedies come from. The other half comes from people's desire for power, and as we established, Hestia had plenty of that, but maybe not as much as Vesta, her Roman equivalent. The most disturbing myth featuring Hestia is technically about her Roman equivalent, Vesta, who's mostly the same as Hestia, but a little different. The biggest differences between these goddesses is how they were worshipped. I told you that Hestia didn't have many temples or major cults in Greece, but Vesta was one of the Romans' chief goddesses, and her temple contained the sacred fire that Romans believed connected them to the gods. This fire was tended to by the Vestal Virgins, maidens who were taken from their families between the ages of 6 and 10, legally emancipated, and forced into swearing a 30-year vow of chastity. It was a serious commitment, and any priestess found guilty of any kind of promiscuity was buried alive. As if that's not messed up enough, when a priestess did survive to the end of her court-mandated service, more often than not, she would choose to stay in the priesthood instead of going free. Partially because of the generous pension and social clout the job came with, but also because her limited life experience left her totally unprepared to take on the domestic duties that would be expected of her as a Roman woman. Kind of ironic considering that Vesta was also a goddess of the home. I guess the priestess curriculum was solely focused on tending to the sacred flame. Or maybe that's just all the priestesses cared about since they were whipped if they ever let it go out. Anyway, this myth can be found in book six of a poem called The Fasti, which was written by the Roman poet Ovid and published within the first century of the current era. In a dialogue about the origins of Vestalia, the festival dedicated to Vesta, we're told about her encounter with a god named Priapus. Priapus was a minor fertility god with one distinct characteristic, his dimples. Just kidding, it was his giant cock. The story goes that Rhea, the mother of the Olympians, threw a rager of a party and everyone in attendance, from the satyrs to the gods, got hammered on wine. After the party, Vesta, or Hestia if you prefer, took a little stroll through the garden and found herself a nice spot to take a nap. Meanwhile, Priapus was lurking through the shadows, being a total creep, and looking for some tipsy nymphs to make a move on. Instead, he found Vesta sleeping peacefully and tried taking advantage of her which was not well received. 
He was actually almost successful in his attempt too, but just as he was about to get going, a donkey stumbled up to them and started to bray. Naturally, this woke Vesta up and scared the hell out of Priapus, who ran away as fast as he could from the scene of the crime. The goddess was safe from harm, but the story isn't over because after Priapus ran away, one of his followers killed the donkey who spoiled his fun and sacrificed his guts in a sacred fire, declaring that all donkey sacrificed henceforth would be in honor of Priapus. Isn't that just the most inconsiderate shit? It's like, hey Hestia, remember the most traumatic night of your life? Well, here you go. It's the blood and guts of the animal that saved ya. Be sure to give them to your assailant. Priapus is lucky that she's a forgiving goddess because I'm sure you could think of a few ideas for what his punishments would entail. Or at least, one big idea. On that totally normal and not at all disturbing note, I want to wrap this episode up. I hope you all enjoyed it, and I hope I gave you some newfound appreciation for a goddess that doesn't get nearly enough love. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, I've got good news. There's a lot more where that came from. Make sure to check out our previous episodes on Greek mythology, Norse mythology, Polynesian mythology, and folklore. Also make sure to sacrifice those five star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to bless your feed with more messed up origins content. And if you want to get in touch with us or want a backup way of being notified when new episodes drop, follow Messed Up Origins on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'll speak with you again next week. Until then, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first. Thank you.